Everybody's talking about disruptive transportation technologies. There's the sharing family, ride share, car share, bike share. Then there are the next generation electric cars. And tiny one and two person vehicles that make even modern compact cars look like barges. Self-driving cars are also making big news. And major companies are battling to be the first to roll out consumer-ready models. Then there are the ways consumers and businesses get goods. Forget going to a store. Whatever you need gets dropped on your doorstep by a truck. And soon, a drone. It's all part of a revolution in transportation, where the privately owned car is no longer the only ride in town. Despite all the talk about tech, less thought seems to be going into the intersection of big transportation technology shifts and the built environment. But I'm talking today with someone who thinks about that a lot. I'm Megan Stromberg, Editor-in-Chief at the American Planning Association. My guest is Josh Westerhold. He's the Senior Manager of Nissan's Future Lab. Nissan, of course, is a car company, a big one. But Josh Westerhold is an urban planner. He got his master's degree at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Hi, Josh. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Megan. It's great to talk with you. Tell us what the Future Lab is. Uh, what's the goal of the work that you do there? Yeah, so broadly, the Future Lab is sort of a diverse group of thinkers that are kind of trying to figure out what comes next in transportation and how that impacts our business model as a car company. Um, we started off in a traditional role of what we call product planning, which is a group of people inside of a car company that look at the trends that sort of drive what's the next SUV going to look like and, and how do people want to drive and what kind of products do they want to drive in the future and where that led us eventually was uh, to acknowledge certain trends that were shaping kind of the global economy. One is obviously you guys think about at planning and other places is a massive shift towards urbanization around the world, the densification of existing cities, uh, but there are others as well, like a global concern about the environment as sort of a, a broader shift towards collective values and, and sharing things and improving the utilization of assets. All of those things led us to a view that our traditional model uh, wasn't the only model that exists for a car company or transportation company of the future, and that uh, was both challenging as well as representing sort of an opportunity for some exciting solutions. So the Future Lab's job is to kind of see around the corner. Uh, we, we try to validate what is real and what trends are, are going to actually make a difference in our business, um, and then... Uh, take that information back, validate all that, and feed it back into the larger organization of, of Nissan. Uh, and then hopefully the result is that we develop uh, really new, exciting physical products, which we're really good at as a car company, but also other services as well. Earlier in your career, you had, a, you had your own transportation company uh, in Las Vegas that offered people alternatives to using a car. Um, and then, of course, you're trained as an urban planner. Uh, how did those experience inform what you do now? Yeah, there's. Uh, I've taken a, a indirect path to land uh, where I am today, but what's cool about the Future Lab is it's sort of a unique group of uh, small, you know, small group of people that are challenging uh, sort of what we know of as large traditional companies. So we, in some ways, operate a little bit as a startup. We, we have the resources of a large company. We're both we actually are part of something called the Renault-Nissan Alliance. So both the French car company Renault as well as Nissan. So combined, that's 450,000 or so people that we 
that are employees of, of the, the alliance. But we're a team of five that are sort of go, you know, using uh, things like agile thinking, sort of startup approaches to, uh, to building new products and new ideas and new services, but with those huge resources. It's a challenge at times because, you know, obviously things are, you know, move a little bit slower inside of a larger company. But at the same time, when you look at the opportunity for impact at such a large global organization, it's really exciting to take some of those uh, approaches that we thought about at our company in Las Vegas, as well as as an planner, and say, this is really where uh, the, the the rubber hits the road, to use a really bad uh, car pun. You mentioned that your group looks at trend you know, global trends, um, national trends, uh, like urbanization and densification and environmental issues to inform the bigger company. But I wonder if car companies, if you think car companies are starting to or need to uh, think of themselves differently, um, particularly as people are using automobiles less. Yeah, so I think when you look at a lot of these trends, there are continued growth in big metrics like vehicle miles traveled. And as you have a growing middle class in other parts of the world, people are still moving. And that fluidity is actually quite good for the world because you can actually tie together VMTs or, or personal or uh, personal miles traveled and economic growth. So mobility actually is good for the world. It's good for the economy. It's, it's a, a sign of a developmental class and things like that. But at the same time, people are questioning the, the model of owning that asset, owning that vehicle. And so as a large car company, the way we like to think about it and the way I think we will continue to transition as, as a company is to not just think of ourselves as a car company, but to really think of ourselves as a trips company for a couple of reasons. One, that leads us to different solutions, potentially, and how we monetize our, our business, and, but also because there's a business opportunity there. And there is, a, we've seen it with our non-traditional competitors like uh, Uber and car sharing services and things like that come in and recognize that there is a different movement type that people are willing to pay for, particularly inside of urban environments. And the traditional car sales, car ownership model has some challenges to people that live in places like San Francisco or New York or Singapore. Uh, and so as long as we just take one model or one opportunity or one solution to that type of resident, that type of uh, urban liver, uh, we won't be able to, uh, I don't think we'll fully be able to capture the opportunity that's that's going to be growing in the future. And so that's kind of why I like to focus and, and point our sights on kind of calling ourselves a, a trips company. It sounds like you're talking about a situation where instead of car companies delivering a large product that lasts for a long time and is owned by one person, um, you know, maybe car companies might retain ownership of cars. Maybe they might work with a third party like a rideshare company to um, – make it less about, so that they're not done once they're done manufacturing the car. Certainly. I think that, I mean, that's one of those trends that we are validating. Obviously, the, the overall cost of maintaining 
a massive asset pool of you know a, a car fleet over time is a challenging business proposition. If you look at um, just some really basic math, um, where you take the entire global fleet, which is you know there's about uh, a billion to a billion and a half cars on the road today. Um, that the value of those assets are in the trillions of dollars. They're actually in the future there might be more vehicle assets on the road than the combined net worth of the entire Fortune 500. So this is not something that just one company or two massive companies, in the case of Renault and Nissan, are going to be able to own. So there will be times that we sell and we will obviously continue to sell cars to consumers. I think we will continue to look for partnerships with uh, large rideshare providers or, or fleet providers, um, as well as exploring options for us to offer new services using our product um, to, to sell to a different type of consumer, maybe on a per-trip basis or a membership basis, something like that. Um, I think what's exciting about working in a car company, and this is why... Uh, even though I catch some grief from other urban planners that I know, friends of mine, colleagues of mine, about working at a car company, is that there really is a unique opportunity to combine a new business model with better product. We're actually really, really good at building things that are safe, building things that are technologically advanced, um, building, we know how to manufacture at scale, things that we've already seen other non-traditional competitors struggle with. You've seen sort of Google and Apple kind of through fits and starts talk about building cars, not building cars, partnering with cars. We do that really well. What we need to learn about is understanding those user behaviors and those consumer trends in the future and, go, and feeding that back into building really exciting sort of new ways of thinking, right? Different types of cars for different types of uses uh, and then thinking about a, a, an ecosystem and a business model maybe a service model that wraps around it to meet the needs of the of sort of a different type of user perhaps in the future. Moving from the car itself and the business model of car companies to the built environment, how, what kinds of changes do you see um, coming down the road? How might say a small, a much smaller vehicle um, how might that impact streets, intersections, uh, parking, traffic, even um, building design and setbacks? Yeah, uh, I think that's a, a very exciting question. The, the urban planner and sort of the designer in me gets really, I nerd out a little bit when we start talking about these types of things. So we have a, a current partnership here in San Francisco with a company called Scoot Networks. It's a startup company that started with just an electric scooter sharing service. And we were able to give uh, give them as part of a research project a small fleet of what we call the new mobility concept, which is a small, all-electric, uh, two-seater kind of urban mover. So it's roughly half to two-thirds of the, uh, the size of a smart car, just to give you a sense of scale. And we had that in the streets of San Francisco for public use for the last you know, year and a half or so, seeing how people use it and seeing how it transforms the way people move in the city. As you contemplate maybe a larger fleet of those uh, through shared services or being sold to the average person, you go from the size of, say, a mid-sized crossover, which is a really popular in the United States, which you know probably has a 200 square foot footprint or something close to that 
to a vehicle that has, you know, a 20 square foot footprint, obviously the need to park changes that that vehicle, as long as municipal regulations allow it, can park rear to curb or front to curb. So you can put two or three of these in a traditional parallel parking spot. So you increase the sort of mobility uh, metrics of the the actual streetscape. Um, the street itself, if you can put two side-by-side in an existing lane, which you can geometrically, if you do that, you can all of a sudden move more people through your streets, especially when you recognize that average occupancy and trips, even in urban environments, is about 1.6 people. So even, you know, right size of vehicle for urban movement when you're challenged from a spatial component, when you actually have limitations because built, you know, the built environment inside of a, a dense place is constrained. Space is a lot more valuable than it is the further you go out and, you know, into the suburbs and the rural areas of our country. The more that you can increase movement on the same infrastructure, the same street size, the better it is for the city, I would argue. And so obviously that impacts street, you know, sort of the complete streets design, parking, um, thinking about how do you design sort of large physical infrastructure in the future, whether that's uh, interstate infrastructure or large parking structure. As developers think about how to meet the need for parking or reduce the need for parking in their environments, you start stacking a bunch of these small vehicles in place. Now we reduce the cost of uh, a building, an apartment building, or a condo building, or a home. That makes more naturally affordable housing for a community. So there's a lot of impacts that smaller vehicles can start to have. Not to mention that this vehicle, in, it, you know, in particular, is an all-electric vehicle. So now you're decreasing the soundscape and you know, sort of noise pollution of the city. Um, they're low-speed vehicles, so you improve safety. Um, tons of opportunity to kind of change the built environment as you as you think about you know, a, a vehicle that's more perhaps uh, deliberately built for, for urban environments. What about autonomous vehicles? What what challenges and opportunities do they bring for planning planners and community? Yeah, uh, fantastic question. We are still sort of figuring it out. One of the things that uh, I've noticed in a lot of the conversations that I've had with people broadly in what I would call the planning professions or kind of uh, municipal leaders thinking about uh, the issue of autonomous is, one, I think people were kind of caught off guard with the growth of uh, TNCs and and ride-sharing companies, uh, ride-hailing companies like Uber and Lyft and others, is it's had a significant impact on the streetscape already. So I live in San Francisco. Everywhere I go inside of the city, it feels like the majority of cars have the little Uber or Lyft sticker on them. And the amount of double parking and pickup and drop-offs that occur um, that actually impact the, the fluidity of the streetscape are, I, I don't think, can be understated at this point. And because what originally, you know, planners and, and thought about, okay, we're going to have taxi pickup and drop-off locations in a handful of locations, particularly those that are maybe uh, hospitality-related, tourist-related. You know, so we designate certain curb space as taxi pickup and drop-off. Well, now, because of the ease of hailing a vehicle anywhere in the city, 
Now, anywhere in the city is essentially a pickup and drop-off. Well, most of an urban streetscape is not designed for that, and so it happens in the middle of the street. And you start adding on top of that on-demand deliveries through Amazon or other companies like Grubhub or Postmates, and now the, the street itself is performing different functions than planners originally thought about. Well, the moment that's currently on a business model that relies heavily on paying for a driver, which makes them expensive and uh, under uh, undervalued by a lot of consumers. So we're doing a lot of it, but it's still expensive to rely on it completely. Not that many people take Uber for their daily commute trips, for example, because of the cost of it. Well, the moment that autonomy comes in and you reduce the cost, you know, the cost of that trip by taking the driver out of the equation, the expectation is you're going to actually see a big increase in, in these types of point-to-point trips or on-demand deliveries or anything like that. We have to, as a planning community, think about what the impact in particular on the street will be. So thinking about designated curb drop-off locations, thinking about its impact on parking, thinking about a long-term infrastructure spending and planning projects. I had a, a conversation recently with a, a planner in uh, sort of the South Bay Silicon Valley area who you know, took me out to lunch and we were talking about the, a potential seminar just to talk about autonomous driving and he eventually got around to what I think was his real question. He wanted to get a sense of, okay, when is autonomous driving really going to be here? When is it going to have the impact that everyone says it's going to? And I was like, well, you know, it's really hard to say. You know, pretty much every automotive uh, OEM, big auto company, has said somewhere around 2020 or so we're going to have autonomous vehicles of some capacity on the street. That doesn't necessarily mean, say, level five. Full autonomy can take a little while to develop. These are sort of the thinking. And he kept pressing, and I asked him eventually, like, you know, what, what's behind sort of really trying to, to, to label that or, or get that answered? And what it came down to is this city has a, in their kind of downtown area, has a parking issue. They, are un, they consider themselves to be underparked. They need more parking. And so they're considering the option of building a structured parking deck, which would traditionally, they would bond. So they're going to take out some sort of municipal bond, long-term, you know, 40-year bond or something like that to pay for it. Well, they do that, and then all of a sudden, 10 years from today, people don't need parking anymore because they're just hailing an autonomous vehicle all the time and don't need to park because it's just picking other people up or they're sending it around or sending it back home or wherever that car goes, well, now all of a sudden the financing structure for a pretty expensive build completely falls apart. So planners today uh, are thinking about long-term impact of, of autonomous vehicles. And we are very much in the time frame of uh, when we believe autonomous vehicles will have a considerable impact on movement in, in our built environments and the same sort of overlapping time frame of infrastructure planning and sort of built environment choices that we're making. So 20, you know, 25 year MPO plans uh, need to consider and pay attention to the impact of autonomous because that is very much going to be in that time frame. Uh, and those questions are still being decided. 
we're still trying to figure that out. I think from my conversations, planners are looking to sort of the automotive and tech industries that are pushing the the development of autonomous vehicles, saying when is it coming, when will we know, how, you know what impact can we assume so that we can make decisions about the built environment because, you know, I can spin up an app or start a company in six months and it can be dead in a year, but the built environment is sticky. The built environment stays around a really long time and planners know that. And so when they're making decisions about zoning, about how to use the curb space, about infrastructure planning for the street or for parking, um, I think they're aware of things are changing in the time frame that they're now considering project builds. Um, and that's exciting to be in, but it's also, I would imagine, on the more professional planner side of this equation is nerve-wracking, um, which is why I think, you know, this planner and, and the city and, and Silicon Valley can be really kind of trying to get an answer. And, try, and he's probably asking, I'm not the only one he's asking, I'm sure he's asking everyone that he talks to you about, you know, what we can project. I think you're. I think you're right, and, and your example is a good one. Um, about a good, it's a good example of the mismatch between the speed of these technologies and the relative slow, deliberative planning process that planners very much pride themselves on. Not to mention, when you're talking about a major infrastructure project that has layers of review and financing, I mean, it could be 13 years to go through an environmental review process. Yeah. So I think planners are uh, they're in sort of a, they're in a really interesting spot. Um, do you get the sense that the planners that you know are jumping in feet first, trying to figure this out? Are they saying wait and see? Yeah. So I, I think obviously some of that depends on the the specific. I guess, layer of, of the planning sort of environment that any individual planner is, is participating in. So there was some research that was done not long ago, and it's a little bit outdated at this point. It was using, 20, I think, 2014 or 2015 data that surveyed the 25 largest NPOs in the, in the U.S. to see if they had even included or had they thought about the impact of autonomous vehicles on you know, their, their long-range plans, so 25-year plans. And only one out of those 25, 20 or 25 largest NPOs even had language uh, around autonomous vehicles. And it was really light. It didn't really contemplate it. It sort of said, this is a trend that we should expect. The truth is that in, in 25 years, by all accounts, autonomous vehicles will have a significant impact on travel inside the United States and, and other markets around the world. And so, you know, if you're thinking about long-range planning, I would start as a planner, become as expert as you possibly can in this. Reach out to people. You know, almost every automotive company has a group like ours at the Future Lab that is contemplating these things. Uh, the Silicon Valley area has become in a little bit sort of the Detroit of today. Uh, we, it's mostly R&D and sort of new business innovations, but pretty much every car company in the world has set up shop in Silicon Valley in some capacity. And a lot of it is doing what we're doing. 
thinking about what these trends are going to be. And I think we're looking to, to the planning regimes as well. I think when we look at the impact and sort of the growth of autonomous vehicles and how it will impact our business, some of that is consumer behavior. How will people adopt? How will people use? What are their, you know, what are, what are their positions and motivations around uh, what type of vehicle and, and whether or not they want to share trips and, you know, sort of use pooling uh, services like Uber Pool with an autonomous vehicle, as well as how are, you know, planners and municipal uh, agencies and governments and city councils going to think about this? Because if you look at the models, uh, for the most part, if you uh, use what I would call kind of the, the traditional Uber or UberX model of uh, pick up a customer, take them to their destination, and then go pick up the next customer, if you use that model, congestion can increase, at least according to a lot of the models, by 10 to 15% inside of the city. So our estimation is that cities, because they saw what happened with Uber, they're anxious about not repeating that and increasing that impact with autonomous vehicles, are going to pay attention to congestion closely and probably start regulating in some way or at least negotiating what that impact might be. And so as we think about our long-range planning, you know, 10 years down the road thinking about the vehicles that we want to start planning for and building, we're also paying attention to how cities think about this. And so I would start with reach out. Include in your planning anything that's longer than I would say 10 years, you should, you should definitely include the impact of autonomous vehicles on there, but also come back and talk to people like me. Start with us because obviously we want Nissan to, you know, sort of win the future. And so, you know, come and start with me as a planner working in a car company. I want to talk about these issues because I care about our impact on cities. And I also think that I care about cities' impacts on our, on our business as well. Then I would say sort of as you get closer in time frame, I wouldn't necessarily freak out about a five-year time frame and what's going to happen in five years because I think we will start to see them. So we want to think about public safety. Uh, we want to think about how, if you want to uh, accelerate the adoption for a variety, and there are reasons to do that for public safety reasons and stuff like that, what are the, you know, the technological infrastructure pieces, you know, high-definition mapping of your city, uh, uh, physical infrastructure and data infrastructure that enables those things work. I'm in conversation with a, a city uh, right now about uh, possibly doing some sort of pilot work around what would uh, autonomous look like in the city and thinking about uh, how to build the city in a way that can accelerate and accommodate uh, autonomous vehicles. So, you know, some cities will, will want to be one of the first. And so I think that's where you start to think about a lot of the data. I think the other way to do it as well is use TNCs and ride sharing as an opportunity to set yourself up from a zoning and regulatory standpoint for the autonomous vehicles of the future. So um, the curb space that you might want to start thinking about designating for pickup and drop-offs for TNCs are going to probably be the same pickup and drop-off curb spaces for uh, for an autonomous vehicle in the future. Think about how do you, if, if fluidity and mobility is what matters, how do you think about designing the streetscape, you know, the complete street of the future? How do you start to 
uh, not just designed for you know large single occupant cars driving through your cities, but actually moving more people. So that has impact on pedestrian. It has impact on bikes. But also starts to have impact on things that are available today, like these, you know, the new mobility concept, a very small vehicle, or shuttle, you know, dynamically routed shuttle systems that we're starting to see a lot more of. Um, that is stuff you can do today that autonomy will make better, uh, will will improve that fluidity, will make it more efficient. Uh, but you don't have to wait for autonomy to do some of those things. So that's kind of how I think about it. I think I could keep talking for a while about it, but uh, those are, sort of, I guess, my general pointers. It sounds like you could, but I thank you for those um, thoughts. It's obvious this is something that you do a lot of thinking about, and um, uh, there's a lot. it sounds like planners and communities have uh, their work cut out for them to get up to speed. Yes, uh, and we do too. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have this uh, that's completely figured out. You know, we're still, no one does. Uh, the most advanced uh, technology available today still has challenges. It's still imperfect. You know, we announced at CES and Nissan announced what we call SAM for short, but it's seamless autonomous mobility. And our view of that is the easiest way to think about it is you sort of have an air traffic controller for your autonomous car. So someone is watching what happens to the car because in reality no one's really built a hundred percent perfect autonomous vehicle and so there's always these edge cases and edge conditions that present challenges to something that's rules-based so if you're a human driver and you approach uh, something like a, a construction zone and the only way around it is to cross a double yellow line well you as a human know to sort of assess no one's coming, it's perfectly safe, I'm going to break the rules by crossing a double yellow line. Computers are, you know, for the most part, rules-based. And so if you set a rule of don't cross a double yellow line, 99.9 percentage of the time, that's exactly what you want to have happen. You don't want that car crossing a double yellow line that's unsafe. But in that moment, uh, I have to cross the double yellow line. It actually confuses the computer, basically. And so we built as a means of accelerating adoption and pushing autonomy forward, we have built a system that allows us to kind of have someone watching our autonomous cars anywhere in the world, basically, to say, okay, you've approached a moment where it's actually difficult. We can get you around that moment. Because one of the things we recognize is people actually don't like taking back over an autonomous vehicle once it's in autonomous mode. So we've been doing some research on that, and so we designed a system around it. These are things that, again, planners, you know, we're trying to figure out. We need a lot of help on. Um, but there is an, there will be an impact with, you know, sort of planning around technology, around how do you, again, design the, the physical streetscape itself to make these systems work better. Um, so just because we're a little bit faster doesn't mean we have everything figured out. And so we, we very much, I think, are, are looking forward to continuous conversations with uh, municipal leaders, planners, designers, um, to, to think about how transportation of the future impacts the built environment of the future. Well, Josh, thank you so much for talking with the American Planning Association today. Anytime. This was fun. Uh, Josh Westerhold is the senior manager of Nissan's Future Lab.
There's plenty more about the latest in transportation and planning trends in the April 2017 issue of Planning Magazine. Look for it in print or on the web at planning.org. And we talked a bit about car sharing. For more on how the sharing scene is changing the rules of the road, check out APA's PAS report, Planning for Shared Mobility, which is free to all APA members. You'll find that at planning.org as well. Thank you.